many of you have heard of the Weingarten rights? This is your challenge. You know, if, if you're unionized, it rings a very strong bell. But what if you're not unionized? Today we're going to talk about why we should all be aware of the Weingarten rights. And I brought back my mentor, Carl Ulrich, from Sibley, Shillitoe, and Dyer. Because, again, if you've been watching the show, you know this is the man who steps in and supports me anytime we even smell the thought of a union coming into a company. Because I'm not the union specialist. Give me the fight in the parking lot. Give me the the two that are pulling the, their you know each other's hair in the cubicle village. That's my sweet spot. But unions? No. No, Carl has to step in on this one. Carl, thank you for making time. Oh, thanks for having me, Pandy. It's great to be here. <laughs> That's quite an introduction. Thanks. Thanks for that. Well, now we have to tell... I'm honored it. to be thought of as your mentor. That's the first... <laughs> I, you know. The- oh, that's not the first time you've heard that. <laughs> um, and I'm going to go ahead and, and tell our viewers and our listeners, um, our producer just left the podcast room and, and before... Uh, he left. I said, oh, and by the way, we're just going to be the old Pandy and Carl from, you know, when we started this five years ago. The good old days. In the good old <laughs> days where there's no script. We're just talking. And um, this is a topic that uh, I, I read a white paper on it, and it kind of stirred up a little bit of interest. So tell us, let's just start mm-hmm. at the very beginning. Why are the Weingarten rights important? Well, let's talk a little bit about what they are. The, the Weingarten rights stem from a 1975 uh, proceeding from the National Labor Relations Board. And what, what the Weingarten rights refer to is the right uh, of a union-represented employee to have a union representative or coworker sit in on any meeting with management where that employee has reasonable belief that the meeting could result in disciplinary action. In other words, a sort of proxy for representation in a meeting where they, there could be some adverse consequences flow from, from that meeting with management. And, and that Weingarten right was first uh, identified by the Labor Relations Board in 75 and confirmed by the United States Supreme Court. And since that time, uh, the Labor Board has folks probably know changes in compensation from one year to the now, from one administration to the next. So interpretations of what that mean vary too from time to time. It's changed a little bit over the years. But but that's really what Weingarten rights are. And the reason we're still concerned about that, the reason we still have to pay attention to it, is that Weingarten rights are still in the law, are still legally protected rights, and how they're interpreted may vary from from uh, as I said, one administration to the next. Well, and, and again, you brought up my favorite group of all time, the National Labor Relations Board. So let's remind our, our viewers and our listeners, this is a, a body of, of governance that oversees activities in both union and non-union. The National Labor Relations Board is a, a board of uh, uh, an, an administrative board, uh, which is appointed by the, the president. Uh, whoever is president at any given time has the right to appoint uh, board members, five-member board. And the board's function uh, by law is to interpret and to enforce the National Labor Relations Act. Now, the National Labor Relations Act is primarily 
a set of laws which governs the relationship between companies, employers, and union representatives. But there are times when the rights given by the National Labor Relations Act also apply to employees in a non-union setting. And so employers who are non-union, who have their a non-union workforce, also sometimes have to be concerned about complying with that law and have to also be watching and monitoring the evolution of these rights over time. So I read this white paper that says, will non-union employees have Weingarten rights in the workplace soon? Why would I not be interested in that? You, you would be interested in that. And uh, you should be interested in that. Uh, and, and the answer is um, possibly. I give the lawyer response, which is, yeah, possibly. Uh, We don't know yet. As of the current time, right now, in this very moment, Weingarten rights only apply to unionized workers. Only unionized workers have the right to invoke those rights. But the reason we're concerned about it, as employer counsel, as legal representatives of management, the reason we watch this ebb and flow is because in the past, certainly, for a few years in, in after 2000, Weingarten rights were applied by law to non-union workers. That, that law got pulled back. But we've also seen very recently some indications from the National Labor Relations Board, General Counsel, and internal uh, apparatus, which suggests that perhaps they're going to be looking at Weingarten rights differently than they did in the past. So there's, we're concerned about watching these things as some indication that the labor board's policies may change over time. And again, as the composition of the board changes from one administration to the next, uh, these rules frequently get reviewed and sometimes changed. And so we do have to pay attention to that. Well, and it, and it leads us all back to the conversation of conducting a compliant, effective, uh, efficient, and and amiable discussion, a a corrective action conversation, a crucial conversation. And so let's kind of break that down for our viewers and listeners in terms of if we're going to have a difficult conversation with an employee, Mm non-union, what do we need to consider before we walk into that room so that, you know, if if we're, if we're going to put Everyone on edge, and there's going to be emotion in the room no matter what. Right. Well, if you're sitting down with an employee, even a non-union employee, uh, obviously, uh, if it's a difficult kind of conversation about performance, it might be an adversarial, might be some adversarial tension in the room, as there often is. Obviously, as a management person, you want to be sure that you have a, a witness, someone who can observe the conversation, make sure that they're you know, listening, taking notes perhaps, and being uh, um, ready to verify what did and didn't occur in that meeting. Uh, Documentation is extremely important uh, from a management perspective uh, that you document what was said and the response of the employee. Also, um, you know, frequently employees will want to have somebody present from their perspective to advise or counsel them. Now, Employers in a non-union setting are not obligated to uh, necessarily um, allow union representatives. There's no union, so there's no union representative to sit in on the meeting, but they're not obligated to allow someone to come in 
to sit in on that uh, meeting for the employee, but they can do that if they if they choose. Um, and that's really a judgment call. Most often, non-union management representatives will typically not offer that option and will not necessarily allow it simply because it makes the meeting uh, more complex and involves too many parties. So it, it just doesn't doesn't work very well for most um, management representatives, uh, HR people. But but that's something you might consider if you are a union employer. Obviously, uh, when an employee asks for a union representative in a meeting involving the potential for disciplinary action, uh, the company does not have the option of rejecting that request. And if you do reject that request and continue with the meeting, uh, then you've committed an unfair labor practice. And so that then becomes part of litigation before the labor board. So again, to some extent, it's going to depend a little bit on whether you are a union employer or a non-union employer, how you proceed. Mm -hmm. Non-union employees, confrontation is not a comfortable situation. And, and again, emotion seems to always be involved when there aren't the constraints and the contract language and all the other things that exist with a union employer. Because when a union employee sits down, they already know basically their rights. They also pretty well know what the disciplinary is going to, or the action is going to look like. Non-union, entirely different. So, it's funny, and, and correct me if, if you disagree, but I always try to coach my clients to say, look, if you're going to have this kind of com uh, conversation, you need to establish right at the very beginning what you hope to accomplish, and this should not be a battle of the wills. So we're not going in for, for argument's sakes, or we're not going to he said, she said, or that's an investigation, a corrective action is this is what we need to talk about. This is the outcome we're looking for. This is the impact on the company. If, if you don't, this is the consequence that should happen if you if it doesn't change. So it should be very specific and very dry. Mm -hmm. uh, the witness, I love the fact you brought up the witness because the witness should be sitting over in the corner and doing just that, taking notes. Mm -hmm. If If in these kind of situations, if the witness decides to chime in and it looks like you've got two against one, it's never a good, never a good situation. Yeah, I, th I think your point about having a an agenda, a game plan, uh, particularly in a uh, represented employee union setting, is extremely important. Uh, I think the management person who is leading the meeting needs to make it very clear what the purpose of the meeting is. If it's investigatory, it's investigatory. If it's for purposes of assessing performance, you make that clear. In other words, the agenda is, and and the the roadmap, if you will, for that meeting is is thought about ahead of time. And I think what can often happen in these kinds of meetings is that they can get out of control because the employee, naturally, as you pointed out, is is in a position where they want to defend themselves, and it's perfectly natural that they would. And so you get into this kind of def, you know. Um, uh, adversarial back and forth and an argument, and it can be very dysfunctional and, and not very productive, the meeting needs to be structured and needs to be in control at all times. And that is, uh, I think, just a best practice really for any kind of uh, employee relations type of um, uh, meeting or, or investigation. Mm -hmm. 
And it, let's go over, let's say that the, the non-union employer does permit someone to step in and be a witness for the employee. It's okay for the employer to set some ground rules for them. Well, absolutely. And even in the union context, uh, it's okay for the employer to set some ground rules. For example, the, the witness, uh, a Weingarten witness, for example, the person who's being asked to come in in a union meeting to, to represent, is, is permitted to be present, is permitted to ask clarifying questions, is permitted to provide you know, advice to the person, but is not permitted to answer the questions on behalf of the employee. And that's very important, particularly in an investigatory context. If you've brought somebody in and you want to interview them, you want to know what they have to say, not what their witness or what their union representative has to say on their behalf. Uh, If it's a performance evaluation kind of scenario where you're contemplating corrective action of some kind and they bring in a, a union representative or a witness of some kind, you want the witness to limit their involvement to uh, those things that I just mentioned. It's not about answering the questions on behalf of the witness or telling the witness not to answer. That's not the role of the, the um, or telling the um, uh, employee not to answer. It's not that, that's not the role of the person brought in. Uh, but uh, they are there to provide support, to provide um, some counsel, uh, and to ask clarifying questions. But beyond that, really, um, their role is, is much more limited. Let's say that they decide to take notes. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing wrong with that. Um, and I, I don't really think the employer has the right to say no. Um, more interesting question perhaps might be whether the witness union or non-union wants to record the meeting. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, good right? call. Does the uh, union representative brought in under Weingarten rights uh, or the non-union witness, if the employer allows it in that case, uh, are you required as an employer to allow that person to record the meeting? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I don't think Weingarten contemplates any of that. And I think, uh, you know, some of that may be a question about whether you've had a policy or practice in the past of allowing that. But in most cases, I, I, I would say no. And I don't think you're obligated to allow that to occur. Notes, eh, maybe that's a little different, but uh, uh, recordings have a tendency to be uh, a little more intrusive. And uh, Now, uh, even employers will sometimes want to record those meetings, but uh, again, it's the employer's meeting, so you're going to have to think about whether that's the right thing to do from an employer's standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about the remote worker real quick. when I'm doing a mediation and, and we're doing it remote, I always ask, actually, it's part of my mediation summary, it, I, if there's going to be somebody else in the room, I have to know about that up front because these are all confidential conversations. Every, everything that happens in caucus is, is confidential. And I would think the same thing should be true if there's going to be a corrective action and it's, and it's remote, we're doing it virtual. The, the employer has every right to say, is there anybody else in the room? Uh, will there be anyone else participating? Because the last thing we enjoy having is listening to a, a certain voice in the background and watching their eyes or their ears tilted to, <laughs> right. so you know they're being coached, right? Or, or somebody passing notes oh, there to you them, go. You know, below the screen, <laughs> which we've seen happen every once in a while. Yeah, uh, great point, Pandy. I think 
Uh, in those situations, yes. Uh, you need to know whether there's anybody participating in the room. Now, whether the, when, when you're talking to somebody remotely, are they going to share that information or not? Probably. Uh, it might be a question. These kinds of meetings, though, I, I guess in my, in my world, uh, when you do, an, uh, when you do a, an investigatory meeting or when you do a corrective action meeting, as an employer management representative with an employee, with or without Weingarten representatives present, I think you want to do it in person. Mm -hmm. And again, as a lawyer, as a litigator, as somebody who does trial work, who works with witnesses, I, I, I am able to determine an awful lot by observing a witness across a table. Oh gosh, body language, yeah. Body language in ways yes. that you'd never be able to do by Zoom, yes. you know? And, and I think that's as valid in a in a employment in employee relations setting as it is in trial, you know, mm -hmm. or in a deposition. Yep. So, so again, I think, I, I think my advice would normally be to employers, you know, do these meetings in person if you can. Well, and, and even more important than that, do the meetings. Don't avoid them. Right. Do the meetings. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Do them right. timely and understand that you should be treating that employee, whether there's a witness or not, in the most professional manner so that maybe we won't even need Weingarten rights in non-union situations. Agreed. Carl, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Human Resource. Hope to see you again. <laughs>